Welcome to the Teaching Race Matters podcast from the Runnymede Trust, the UK's leading race equality think tank. This podcast seeks to explore what it means to teach race, migration and empire in schools. We will be interviewing academics, teachers and practitioners as we explore Britain's history of migration and anti-racist activism, as well as the actions being taken in schools across the UK to diversify the curriculum. In this episode, we will discuss the arrival of Romani gypsies in the beginning of the 16th century in Britain. Initially welcomed by the local gentry and royalty, social changes taking place across Europe led to the souring of this relationship. In 1531, the Parliament of England passed an act which expelled all Romani gypsies from the country. What had happened to lead to this expulsion less than 30 years after their arrival? The Runnymede Trust is joined by the author and academic Professor Becky Taylor, who is Professor of Modern History at the University of East Anglia. We will then speak to Helen Snelson, who is the PGCE History Lead at the University of York, and who has developed educational resources on Gypsy, Roma and Traveller history. Uh, Becky, if I could ask you first, I'd be really interested in starting off by asking what, if anything, drove Romani gypsies to arrive in England in the early 16th century? Well, the short answer is we don't exactly know. The the much longer answer is actually we need to sort of think back probably to um, the Black Death, which you know, entered Europe in, uh, as you know, in 1348. And we think that that was one of the things that pushed um, Roma, as gypsies are known in, in the Balkans, from the Balkans, where they'd been established for the last few hundred years, to start moving into Western Europe. Because one of the things, you know, as we know, happened with the Black Death was um, massive depopulation right across Europe. And we think that quite possibly um, that provided some kind of economic impetus for the um, for the Roma to leave the Balkans um, in the sense that, A, we know that the Balkans were also hit, hit by the Black Death so there was social turmoil. But of course, one of the things you know, historians have picked up on um, in the last few decades in the historiography is how the Black Death actually improved economic conditions for um, the lower classes in right across Europe with as wages went up because there was short of labour. And so in this sort of economically active climate, it sort of makes sense that the Roma started moving north and west into the rest of Western Europe. And so we start seeing them arriving in Western Europe from, um, you know, 1399. We know they reach Bohemia, you know, what's now the um, Czech, Czech Republic, France 1418. And we see them for the rest of the 15th century um, spreading themselves across Western Europe. And initially, as you sort of alluded to in your um, introduction there, they were welcomed uh, for reasons that we can talk about in a bit, um, by local populations and by local states and and princes. By the end of that period, um, by the beginning of the 16th century, attitudes had started to harden against them. So in uh, 1504, the, uh, the French, for example, um, passed quite a repressive piece of legislation against um, 
what we called the Egyptians at that time. And um, and I think it's no coincidence that it's 1505, the following year, we first start seeing them um, recorded in England for the first time. Having said that, um, they actually popped up a, little, a few years earlier in Scotland, where we think they went across the North Sea, possibly from Denmark, which was you know had a friendly alliance with Scotland at, at the time. And so we see records of them in Scotland before we do in England. But it's sort of essentially we can see them as being, you know, ever since they left um, India in uh, you know ninth, tenth, eleventh century, there'd been this gradual move north and west, and so they, you know, hitting the British Isles in the sixteenth century is almost you know the the next bit of that story. Thanks, Becky. If I could just pick up on something that you mentioned there, you, you were talking uh, about how Roman gypsies were first treated when they arrived at the in England. Could you just expand on that a little bit? It'd be fascinating to know uh, a little bit about that initial treatment that they received when they first arrived in England. Yeah, it's not, and so, I mean, it's not just England here. It's, I think it might be useful for people to know that this is sort of, it's a similar picture that we see right across Western Europe when they first turn up. And it's, you know, broadly, yes, they're strangers, but they're kind of interesting strangers. Um, they look a bit different. They're often involved in things like uh, fortune telling, perhaps sort of palmistry. Uh, they're sort of doing sort of musicians, sort of what we think as being sort of circusy kind of things. Um, and so they turn up in places and they are, you know, welcomed as musicians. They're welcomed into courts where they entertain people. They're also welcomed um, for sort of two other reasons too. So two sort of early tactics, if you like, that we see being recorded, um, that how these, you know, strangers explain themselves when they turn up is that they um, are pilgrims, um, that they, you know, if we think about late medieval um, world, actually pil pilgrimage was one of the you know, key, very understandable reasons for people to travel. And it sort of resonated with people. So some of the early groups of these Egyptians, um, as they were called at the time, had letters of pilgrimage where they said that they, um, you know, some of them were apparently signed by the Pope. You know, we think these are probably fraudulent, but they're saying that they are on a pilgrimage for seven years. They may have committed some sin, um, and but the Pope has given them the right to travel to atone for their sins. And so they turn up, they've got their bit of paper. Um, it makes sense to the people who um, who are receiving them in the local town. And so they're often, you know, they may camp outside the city walls, they may well be fed. And while they're there, they would engage in their um, sort of money-making activities through, um, you know, being invited to court um, and um, playing music, palmistry and those kind of things. So that's one of the things um, that you see. The other thing uh, that's really common is that the leader of these different groups of gypsies, they'd often travel into groups of up to sort of 30 people in what we think of as being extended family groups. And the leader of the um, of, of group would often style themselves as a count. They'd say, I'm one of the counts of little Egypt. And um, for whatever reason, we're now traveling and I need a, um, a letter of safe conduct. And so these letter of safe conducts um, were written. So we know, for example, that um, James IV, when they turned up um, in Scotland, he burst, he dispersed 10 French crowns, which is equivalent of like, say, um, seven Scots pounds at the time, um, and issued letters of protection for these counts 
Uh, in fact, it was uh, Anthony uh, Gangino who, um, you know, wanted to then move on to Denmark, which was an allied nation. And so he writes him this letter. So we see these ways in which, although they're strangers, they have you know, they articulate them in ways that the late medieval, early modern world would understand. And that helps ease their entry into the country, into, well, right across Western Europe, including in England and Scotland. So during this period, uh, Europe and Britain were going through some quite significant changes in their attitudes towards poverty and the poor. How would you say, Becky, that these changes affected how Roni Gypsy people were treated? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you alluded in your introduction to the way things that had changed. So that sort of, you know, not quite golden age, because being a peasant probably was never much of a golden age. Um, But the fact is, after the Black Death, um, the ability to be able to get um, higher wages and to sort of bargain, be in a stronger bargaining position over your labour, combined with actually you know, a long arc of relatively good weather meant that the 15th century saw f- relatively few bad harvests. And we see those, um, both of those things changing um, by the beginning of the 16th century. So population growth has started to pick up. Um, we see uh, downturns in the economy. We see um, a number of bad harvests, increasing food prices. And um, Alongside those, I just sort of park it, but I want to mention it now. Um, there's the changes that are caused by the Reformation. Okay, so all of those things on a material level mean that um, actually it's becoming there are there are more poor people around. There's more people who are then on the move for work. Um, they're looking for work. So we see, um, you know, there are lots of con- contemporary accounts of the number of, you know, what are called sturdy beggars on the road, people who are mobile and looking for work. So they're on the roads at the same time that we see the arrival of, um, you know, what we can now think of as being Romani gypsies across, not, not just Britain, this is something that's happening right across the UK. And if you sort of, you know, think back to how poverty had been thought of in um, medieval times although of course you've got this sense in which you know the church is incredibly wealthy there is still this understanding of you know christ as the embodiment of poverty and you know rich men not being able to get through into heaven and you know all those sorts of things which mean that poverty is seen as being an understandable part not just an understandable part of the christian world but almost a reflection of christ himself and so if you sort of think about the different um, mendicant orders that um, arise in the medieval period, they're a reflection of this as well. So you also have, um, you know, friars out um, who are travelling and, uh, you know, begging for religious purposes. So again, you've got this sense in which in the medieval world to be mobile and poor is explicable in the world of Christianity. Um, and we see. But what we see, of course, in the 16th century is something, you know, this all becoming profoundly changed by, um, you know, the massive rupturing um, of people's worldview through the Reformation. And, you know, this is by no means is not my specialist field. I'm not a religious 
historian of the 16th century, but you know it certainly seems to be the case that you know with pr- the rise of Protestantism, there came a, a more individualized view of looking at the world in which, as um, as a person, you not only had more responsibility for your own salvation and through your individual conscience and a more direct relationship with God, this became kind of translated into. Um, and ex- the feeling that you had a responsibility to also look after your body as much as to look after your soul. And therefore, if you were able-bodied, you would be expected to work. And so to the idea of going on a pilgrimage is a very, you know, what became a very Catholic notion. It's not a Protestant notion. So this way of moving um, no longer is acceptable. So those letters of pilgrimage that... Um, Uh, Roman and Egyptians were using in the 15th century start to become more suspicious in the post-Reformation period. And at the same time, of course, not just um, in England and Scotland, but right across Western Europe, you have all of the um, social unrest that uh, is aligned with the um, religious unrest. So you have the wars of religion, you have, um, you know, marauding bands of people who are fighting, um, you know, they could be Protestants, they could be Catholics. And so into this mix now, if you put um, Romani gypsies, it's a very different kind of world where, you know, they're a group of strangers who don't seem any longer to have a religious reason to move, that they could be threatening, they could be the wrong denomination. Um, there's all these sorts of ways in which the world in the 16th century becomes a more difficult world and a less um, welcoming world for outsiders, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm guessing this is what is, uh, therefore, the culmination of which is the Egyptians Act of 1531. So am I correct in thinking that? Um, I think culmination is, all, I mean, it's almost like, I mean, there's a series, we see it's a series of bits of legislation. So there's the 18, uh, sorry, the 1531 legislation. We also see other laws passed in 1554. Um, there's quite an infamous one in 1557. The one that actually lasts the longest is a piece of uh, legislation that's passed um, under Elizabeth I in um, 1563. But there's this, if you sort of think of the central 16th century, you've got this sort of period essentially between, um, or just before the beginning of the Reformation, to um, the second decade of Elizabeth's reign. If you think about it from English history point of view, this is a period of intense turmoil and social change. You know, we now look back on the Elizabethan period as being this, you know, long, glorious period of stability, but it didn't feel like that at the time. It was, you know, the idea of succession was immensely contested. The idea of religion was still immensely contested. And you layer on all of these things to all of these people moving around, whether it's for religious reasons reasons or, you know, through poverty. And the middle of the 16th century, this period of massive uncertainty fueled by poor harvests and a difficult economic situation. And so, yes, what the state is trying to do is to pass series of legislation against, um, you know, it's not just, I would, you know, point out that it's not just against a 
Egyptians. It's also against what they call counterfeit Egyptians, people who are traveling and pretend, quotes, pretending to be gypsies or who are consorting with them. It's against sturdy beggars. It's against unlawful beggars. It's against vagabonds and rogues. And Egyptians are part of this sort of bigger package of sort of lawlessness. Um, and I think, you know, so what we see is the central state grappling with what to do with this mobile population at a period of um, massive social change. And that that's what those bits of legislation are about. Yeah, so how effective were these pieces of legislation? Did they do what they were set out to do? I mean, I think, so David um, Cressy, who's an early modern historian, helpfully talks about them as being fierce but fickle. Um, and I think that's kind of quite useful thinking about it like that because you look at the... You know, you look at these different laws and on the face of it, they're horrific. Um, you know, they range from, I mean, you know, very often it's sort of having your goods taken away or being banished for a first offence of being a gypsy or a vagabond, um, to have your ears cut off, perhaps, and nailed to a tree for your second offence, to be flogged um, and then to be executed, you know, for being a, a gypsy or a vagabond, you know, it's sort of, or, or to be banished. Okay, so there's sort of different sort of scales of it. And so on one level, um, it's, you know, it's very clear that the state has very strong intentions against it. Um, and so it's, but what we need to think about is the gap between what the state is saying and what it's able to do. You don't normally have lots of bits of legislation on the same thing one after another if the legislation is successful, as we see with the asylum acts in the 1990s and two, two, 2000s. If, if, a, if, if a government is passing something every two or three years on the same subject, they're clearly struggling with how to deal with it. And this is what we actually see. If you think of the weakness of the early modern state, it's, um, you know, it needs to perform brutality very often because it doesn't have any day-to-day -day means of being able to control and enforce its its will. I mean, not um, I've got some really interesting examples, not from, from Britain, but I think we can um, extrapolate out from this, but from... Um, the Holy Roman Empire in the similar period where there are bands of gypsies who are meant to be banished and all the rest of it and they capture some some of them and they um, then go, oh no, but that means we've got to put them in jail and that means we've got to feed them. That's a bit annoying. We haven't got enough space. Um, and so they sort of like, you know, grudgingly another town takes some and another town finds them. And so there, and then some of them manage to escape because there aren't enough wardens and then they finally recapture them and they decide to hang them. And then they're just like, oh, but we haven't got a gallows even. And then they go, oh, but now we have to pay the carpenter to build the gallows. Um, and it's this sort of process, you know, and some of the, you know, some of the gypsies then escape at, at, at that point and some of them are, are hanged. And so it's, you know, it's both, and you know, for those people concerned, it's a terrible story in which, you know, a significant number of them ended up being judicially murdered. But on the other hand, it tells us, quite a lot about the weaknesses, the weaknesses of the state, that what it tries to do um, is there's a big gap between that and what it's actually able to do for very, you know, practical reasons. Keeping someone in jail costs money. And so, in fact, that's one of the reasons why banishment was a very popular 
um, tool because you just push them out. Then they're not your problem anymore. You don't have to feed them. You don't even have to pay the carpenter to build build the gallows. They, you're just getting getting rid of them. So banishment, um, though, you know, from a medieval and early modern perspective, the idea of being forcibly and judicially pushed away from your community if you're a member of the wider settled population is seen as being a horrendous thing because it's about tearing you from the body politic and you know forcing you away but for roman gypsies who are used to being mobile being shoved to another place it's just like okay we'll go to the other place that's better than being you know flogged and hanged and all the rest of it so it's sort of interesting with this legislation that it's simultaneously absolutely appalling but we know and we know if for no other reason than the fact by the 18th century when most of these laws across europe fell into disuse that roma Roman Gypsies were established right across the continent. And that wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't have them embedded in every single country, starting to speak different variations of the Romani language, starting to have dis- distinctive cultural forms of Romani life in France compared to Hungary, compared to Spain, compared to England. We wouldn't have that if that legislation had worked. So we need to, simul- to simultaneously think about those laws as being you know, savage in intent, but not as effective as um, certainly the state wanted it to be. That's fascinating. I think one other uh, aspect that we haven't really touched upon that much was the beginnings of colonisation during this period. How much do you think that that shaped the treatment of outsiders within England? Um, I think so. I think we can sort of think about it in two different ways. The first is the sort of the pragmatic way. So I've talked about banishment. um, And one of the things that all of the early modern empires, so that's England, France, Portugal and Spain, I'm thinking of here, um, that they do very quickly is that they start thinking about banishment differently. So banishment in some ways, particularly if you're trying to build your economies, you don't want to lose people, you want to gain people so you can profit from their labour. And so what they do, they extend banishment to what becomes transportation. And so what we have are accounts um, from all of those countries right up until um, the middle of the 18th century, really, where um, transportation to the, quotes new world um, starts to end, is that we see uh, Roman gypsies as being transported alongside other felons because that simultaneously solves the problem of having to keep people in jail and having to pay for them. It means that you're able to benefit from their labour because what happens when you're transported is that then your, your term of conviction, normally seven or 14 years, you are working essentially as an indentured labourer for that period of time. And at the end of that, you're allowed to be free and you can either return or you can stay. So we can think then of the penal penal colonies in that sort of sense as being one of the vanguards of colonialism. Um, And, you know, we have accounts of Romani gypsies being transported and working on the sugar plantations um, on um, what becomes the North American um, colonies. So that sort of, you know, and we see and, you know, we'd seen a sort of a similar thing also with their use in the galleys. So 
um, all the big warships in this period, they're using, they're basically rowed rather than sailed. And so we see large numbers of the captured um, gypsies, particularly in mainland Europe, where a lot of the gypsy hunts that you get in the late 17th, early 18th century around capturing people to be in the galleys, which is to then fuel particularly, um, you know, the battles and the wars in, in the Mediterranean. So you've got the sense in which um, penal labour, including sort of Roman gypsy labour, becomes a tool of state consolidation and state expansion. The other thing that we can start thinking about, you know, one of the obviously the very profound ways in which um, colonization profoundly shaped people's worldviews in thinking about race in different kinds of ways and to start coming up with explanations for why it is that people from Europe are able to do this colonizing and the people who have been colonized um, haven't done that in in reverse. And so we start seeing these different sort of ways of articulating and understanding race differently. And although, um, you know, and so Romani gypsies sort of fit quite uncomfortably into that. They're always seen as being outsiders and strangers and they're seen as being, you know, dark and dirty. And so they're seen as being essentially on the similar kind of level as the new colonised peoples. Um, although, in fact, some very interesting research um, in both or mainly in um, Brazil indicates that uh, gypsies who were transported there, in fact, become middlemen in the slave trade between the coastal areas and the inland sugar plantations because they're sort of mobile, they're used to trading um, and they start sort of so, you know, and they carry on moving, but what they're moving instead of, um, you know, sort of small scale goods and services is they're starting to move people. So we see very complicated ways in which um, the experience of Romani gypsies and Roma um, express different forms of how the modern world is emerging and relating to different places and different kinds of peoples. Yeah. That's uh, incredibly interesting. I'd like to just finish off this part by asking you, what parallels, if any, do you think that this history that we've just been discussing has on the experiences of the Gypsy Roma traveller communities today? I think one of the kind of key continuities that I um, sort of can pick out is, I mean, this sort of sense in which they're outsiders and how do we collectively as people who aren't uh, gypsies, how do we think of these outsiders? And, you know, the, those ideas, I think, you know, that we started seeing in the early modern world of seeing them as criminal and as threatening are ones that the modern world have sort of taken on and amplified. And so outsiders increasingly were seen as being, you know, we go back to those kind of Protestant ideas of, you know, the work ethic and all those sorts of things. By the 20th and the early 20th century, those have been translated into seeing um, Romani gypsies as being outside of the world of work and of being either, you know, living on the dole or as, you know, not, not paying their taxes and not being full worked up citizens. So that I think is sort of, we sort of 
see, we can trace a line back from that early modern period to the present, this idea of how they're living outside of our society and our economy in ways that we we collectively see as being suspicious. Um, and I think we also see, you know, we have seen also the continuation of what we might think of as being this more sort of romanticised idea, which, you know, we can trace back to that idea of them as sort of musicians and sort of palmistry and that they're, they have a certain freedom of movement um, and that's through choice and not through sort of failure. And we see that through those sort of romanticised images that, you know, if you put in gypsy woman into a search engine and click on images, what you'll see are these, you know, flamboyant, you know, images of women with, you know, lustrous long hair and, you know, glowing brown eyes and long floaty skirts and, oh, I've got a bit of gypsy in me kind of, you know, this these sorts of things which... Um, on the one hand appear quite benign, but on the other hand, what they're sort of doing is they're saying, well, if you don't fit in with this kind of stereotype, you're not a real gypsy. And therefore you don't have a right to the space, the acknowledgement that other minority ethnic groups might have because you don't fit in with our preconceived stereotypes. So I think we can sort of trace these things forward and backwards almost. Our next guest is Helen Snelson, who is the PGCE History Lead at the University of York and who has developed some really important and valuable educational resources on Gypsy, Roma and Traveller history. Helen, could I start off by asking you why it's so important that we teach about Gypsy, Roma and Traveller history today? Quite simply, it's better history because Gypsy, Roma and Traveller people were in the past and history is a study of the past. So therefore, um, it has got to be better history to be talking about more and everybody possible in the past. And of course, in schools as well, we don't just teach about the what happened in the past. We teach about the how of history, as I would call it. So by that, I mean how historians continue to work to identify and to question the fragments of the past that remain. Now, we tend to call those stories in the history classroom. Um, and, and historians question, and the questions we ask, and the questions we don't ask, of course, reveal or silence the past. And all of those discussions are very much part of school history. So drawing in the, the, the past of Gypsy, Romans and Traveller peoples, and then also looking at how in history... Perhaps silences have been left, perhaps people have been overlooked. And why that happens is all the meat and stuff of learning how to do history better, which is the the uh, obviously bread and butter of a history teacher. But there's something else as well, which is actually a social justice issue, because, um, of course, there are many Gypsy Roma traveller children in our history classrooms. In some parts of the country, they will be the uh, the largest minority group, if I can put it that way. Um, and they should also see themselves in the past and in the study of history. And really, really crucially, and a lot of thinking and work has been done on this recently, um, not solely as victims. Um, the, the danger for some groups of people, and I, I'm a little nervous about talking about groups of people really, but if you forgive me for a moment in doing that, but is that some people only see themselves when they turn up to be victimised in, in, the, in the grand story of, of, of human life. And, and that's not right either. And school history, of course, is part of understanding how we all got to this moment in time. 
um, something that I think most human beings are interested in at some level, even if not explicitly. Um, and if certain parts of that, how we got here, are absent, then we're never going to open minds to the to the vast and ongoing discussion, as I say, that is, how on earth did we get here? Um, which has also real optimism behind it, because to understand how we got here gives us potential um, ways of moving forward into the future in a in a way that's really good for everybody. So those would be my my two major major uh, pleas to people. It's good history and it's social justice. That's so beautifully put, Helen. Why do you think, though, that understanding how important it is to teach these topics, why has it taken so long and why has it been overlooked for so long? I think I could probably talk for hours about wider societal issues and I won't. I'm going to focus on really, really practical matters, which is that, one, um, we have a community of fabulous history teachers, all of whom are incredibly busy and stretched. And time for professional updating is really difficult. And as a history teacher, if you didn't encounter it in your degree or you haven't had access to subject knowledge updating, then it can be really uh, difficult because you just don't know. I mean, your history teachers almost don't know what they don't know as well. So, and there is a support uh, which is needed for teacher knowledge, which is why you um, doing podcasts like this is fantastic. And hopefully some of the other things we're going to talk about are going to be really supportive. And, and certainly, you know, the accessibility of academics such as Professor Taylor, just fantastic because we're not researchers. We are as history teachers. We've only got, um, if you like, we're only as good as the, as the, as the knowledge behind us that we can that we can draw upon. So I think that's certainly um, one part of it. And I think also as well, um, with a topic such as this, which I think, um, you know, Professor Taylor would agree, has not been historicised as, as fully. There's also another side of it, which is um, about a confidence issue. Um, and one of the things that um, I, I am part of trying to support is helping people to avoid being avoidant. Um, because I think some people want to, uh, lots of people want to, but 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 how? And um, of course, as as we know, as soon as you start looking at any group of people, it all rapidly breaks down, and it's messy, and it's human, and it's complicated, and 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 there are subgroups, and and um, it's difficult to make convenient narratives, and that's brilliant, but that's really difficult if you're drowning in markings. So we so we don't want also people to avoid tackling topics because they fear offending or upsetting or. Um, not getting things right. Um, and so there's also an issue about professional conf confidence, which is perhaps wider than purely subject knowledge. And I think those are the um, two major things. I mean, there's some very structural things, which I won't go into in this podcast, but because all history teachers will be fully aware of about exam specifications and pressure of time on curriculum. But I think let's let's focus our discussion on the more positive about, um, yes, we can. We can find ways of shoehorning yet more into the school history curriculum. So, Helen, just touching on something that you mentioned there, how do you think we can booster uh, teachers' confidence about talking about topics such as Gypsy Roma and Traveller History? Well, hopefully, listening to podcasts such as this, but also um, there is a lot going on to communicate with um, the uh, community groups is really important. So when I first embarked on this journey, I got in touch with our local, um, I'm in York, our York um, uh, Traveller Trust, and they were brilliantly helpful. You know, I attended an awareness raising session. It only took 
half an hour out of my time. Okay. It was half an hour, but it was just so amazing. I went on Zoom and I just learned so much. So I would say contact locally, but also um, the uh, various traveler organizations, if you go onto their websites, there is lots that you can find very easily accessible now um, that will give you some contextual knowledge to communities and, and languages. And the Historical Association, aware of this, for example, which is the Subject Association for History Teachers, has a free page for Gypsy Roma Traveller History, which contains not just subject knowledge such as podcasts by Professor Taylor um, and other links, but also has connections to these organisations so that people can go and, yeah, get that confidence in their own time without feeling exposed because they people may or may not have connections themselves to to different communities. Um, but it's, it's uh, yes, it's our personal responsibility to make sure that we educate ourselves, but it's also really helpful if you, if you know where to go to find things so that there is help out there and it's growing, which is, which is great. So hopefully that's the answer. You touched briefly on some of the teaching resources that are out there to help teach about Gypsy Roma and traveller history. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that? There are a growing number um, and we've more work to do. But obviously there is the work on our migration story that uh, Professor Taylor has just been talking about so, so eloquently. Um, and I think I just want to make that note that actually most of Gypsy Roma traveller history is not a migration story, although there is also spin forward some really nice work going on in schools um, with recently uh, migrated Roma people, mostly post-2004, um, where there are communities in schools. For example, Alex Byrne Lynch is doing some really nice work in a Nottingham school on that. Um, but what we have also done recently, some colleagues and myself, is um, try to create some resources that can be used in a variety of ways. So, for example, we have developed a sequence of lessons, which again is freely available on the Historical Association website, um, which focuses on the story of Mary Squires, um, and uses her as a lens in which to explore how Britain was changing over the long 19th century. So all schools will teach some aspect of industrialising Britain. And um, by developing four lessons, which are very adaptable, we hope what we've done is provide a way of weaving Gypsy Roma Traveller history or an aspect of that, into a subject that is already taught and also done it in a way which hopefully enhances what is already taught. So we're very much thinking of something which history teachers would recognise called world building, that sense of building the student's sense of what the time period you're studying looked like, smelt like, felt like, how what people believed, what their customs were, how people moved about and all those things that enable you to create a world so you can better understand the past and make your knowledge less inert. So we've got those sorts of materials, perhaps slightly longer, slightly slightly bigger. Um, there's another example in relation to that, which is uh, Hodder, uh, the textbook company, are, are producing a new book next year um, in 2023, which is a new look at 20th century social history. And as part of that, um, there will be woven in Gypsy, Roma and Traveller stories. And some of them will be that meteor end of things. So, for example, there's going to be a section relating to um, welfare state Britain, sort of 1945 to 57, and, and how perhaps uh, there were failures and looking at that, those failures through the lens 
of the impact of welfare state Britain on Gypsy Roma and traveller people. Uh, massively grateful to Professor Taylor for helping with that again. Um, but also we need to be aware that what we mustn't do, I think, is create yet another bolt-on notion. Right, at some point in the whole of your study of history, you will do three lessons on Gypsy Roma Traveller and make sure you remember them. No, it's about weaving people in across the whole curriculum. So another part of our work is to make um, available and make clearer and offer to people examples where they can perhaps use the example of a traveller person or um, a gypsy community when they're teaching. So for example, schools teach the First World War. And one of the uh, resources we've made available on the HA website is about a Victoria Cross winner who was a man of gypsy heritage. Um, and his story can be used perhaps on a battlefields tour on the Sayre Road. Many schools go to the Sayre Road in part of a battlefields tour. Or it can be used when teaching about the Battle of the Somme because that's when he won his VC. Or um, it can be woven into um, stories which connect the impact of war on people as you move forward. So it itself is quite small, but it means that you then can weave uh, Gypsy, Roma and Traveller stories into the curriculum. Another example would be there's a resource about fairs through time because students often find economic history quite difficult to understand. But the role of the fair has changed over time. And of course, Gypsies and Travellers are very much woven into the story of fairs in this country. Um, and so we provided a short resource on that as well, which we hope for we, will be helpful. So very much um, not just standalone resources, although sometimes that might be the right and appropriate thing to do, um, to take um, a big topic, but take it through the lens of gypsy and traveller or gypsy or traveller history, Roma history, um, but also to, to integrate. Um, and what we're trying to do is is encourage more and more colleagues to to develop those and draw them together and share them. Helen, if you had a top tip for teaching Gypsy Roma Traveller history in schools, what would it be? Connect, collaborate, cooperate. We're all incredibly busy, um, but let's make sure that we use the platforms available such as the Historical Association, which lots of people are members of, such as History Education Twitter, which lots of people connect with, to, to share resources um, and to talk to each other and to have the courage to build this as a community. Thank you for listening to the Runnymede Trust's Teaching Race Matters podcast. The Our Migration Story website, a collaboration with the universities of Manchester and Cambridge, contains more details about this area of history and provides resources on how to teach it in school classrooms. It can be found on the Runnymede Trust website.